everybody. Welcome to the New Market Alliance Church podcast, where you're invited to not just attend church or watch church, or in this case, listen to church, but actually go and be the church. For everything you need to know about our community, be sure to go to newmarketalliance.ca and maybe even drop us a line to let us know you're listening. We read everything you send and we'll be sure to get back to you. Our worship service happens every Sunday at 10 a.m. in person or streaming online. We want you to know you absolutely matter to God and you absolutely matter to us. Everyone is welcome and wanted. Now, let's join today's teaching. Behavior on uh, airplanes that looks like something out of uh, a UFC cage fight. We got nurses who are being outfitted with panic buttons. There's, I mean, social media that has no bottom these days, it seems. There's a new murder every week. The streets of Ottawa occupied the uh, physical assault at, uh, at the Oscar ceremonies. Uh, what is going on with people these days? And if you find yourself asking that question, um, you're not alone. Something has changed in the way that people are acting over the last couple of years. Why? Well, I think um, the pandemic and masks and quarantines and uh, like, did that encourage us all to act so awfully? There was a study out of Georgetown uh, recently and uh, they came up with some conclusions, some not surprisingly. Number one, we're all stressed out, obvi, uh, from staff shortages to, uh, thank you, Brittany, to uh, inflation to all the COVID has stolen from us, and it seems to result in this collective animus towards each other. Uh, Number two, we're abusing more substances than ever before. Uh, A lot of these incidents on planes and hospitals and road rage involve somebody using a substance, and drug overdose have increased since 2019. Number three, we are social beings who have been forced into isolation, and it's, it's changing us. Uh, kids stop going to school, uh, parents stop going to work, parishioners stop going to church, people stopped gathering in general, and it's changing us. Um, number four, culturally, I don't think I've seen a people more divided. I, I, I've never seen a time where it seems there is no neutral topic. You, you with me on this? Every topic has this potential for contention. School closings, oh, how about school openings? politics, on and on. And I'm not just talking about this in some theoretical way. Some of you all know all too well uh, how this has affected you personally, your families, for instance. I know many of you who had to change your Thanksgiving plans, change who you can break bread with, uh, because the, the culture wars have infiltrated families. And of course, tragically, these same Tensions have infiltrated the church at large. People who can't attend anymore because of disagreements. People who will sit on this side as far away from the, uh, you know, solarium side. Now, I don't know anybody who does that. But, like, you know, if you do want to avoid somebody, you, you could get a good 200 feet away from them. And so often it's more of an unspoken conflict, especially in churches, And so that sinking feeling we're talking about this week is one 
that many of us are feeling lately. It's a feeling of, of unresolved tension. It, it feels thick in the air. And uh, a feeling of being in conflict. A feeling of like walking on eggshells a lot of the time. And God, through his word, actually has really helpful advice for us so that we don't have to live in this thick cloud of unresolved tension hanging over us. This is actually really, I hope this is really practical for you today, but it, it, it requires a bit of courage on our part. Now, if you know me well, really well, you know I shouldn't be preaching this message. Um, I tend to avoid confrontation. Uh, it, it's, it's me not excelling at this, though, at these biblical principles, doesn't make it untrue. You know, may the word be proved true and all else a liar. And so the Bible's instruction on conflict resolution, it is right, it is wise, it works. And being lousy at it sometimes means nothing more than I am a broken human. By God's grace, I'm, I'm learning, I'm getting better at it. You can too. Now, let me ask you this. A real question. Answer me. Is, is conflict a sin? No. no. Good. You passed. It is not a sin. It, it, may, it may feel like it sometimes. Christians don't always know what to do with anything that doesn't feel nice. But it's not inherently sinful. What you do with conflict may be a sin. But just acknowledging that you're in conflict is not sinful. Conflict could actually, get a load of this, glorify God. You heard me. How many of you know that if you are with people, there will be conflict? There is no conflict-free environment. Actually, that's not true. There's one I can think of, a graveyard. Uh, these people aren't squabbling or hurting each other's feelings anymore. But folks, we're called to be alive. And since God has created us as unique individuals with different opinions and convictions and desires and perspectives and Enneagram numbers, you know, there will be conflict. So even though we should seek unity in our church, we don't demand uniformity, right? There's a difference. We recognize that there are just a precious few hills that we'll, we'll die on and a whole host of nuanced things that we hold more loosely. At least that's how it should work. But the, the brother of Jesus, James, writes that it's often our own sinful motives that cause conflicts. Here's what he says in James 4. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. And I might argue that instead of overt quarreling and fighting, more often in the church, it's probably more like the sin of habitual avoidance, maybe of, of necessary conflict. You know, you think that by avoiding conflict it goes away, when in fact it inevitably affects our unity, our, our authenticity, 
our fruitfulness, our witness. And it might be the primary reason that we don't enjoy each other the way that that God wants us to today. So here's what the, the wisest writing in all of history says about this. Proverbs 27, verse 5 to 6. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted. But an enem- enemy, I was going to say enema, but an enemy multiplies kisses. We're talking about love here, folks. If you, if you don't care about someone... Why bother telling them that there's something in their life that's creating hurt for you or for them, hurt for their soul? It's easier just to pull away from them. But, but that's not love. Uh, when someone habitually avoids you or avoids any depth of relationship, sure, there's no tension, but there's not really love, is there? Church, we, we, we just have to be vigilant about this. Ephesians 4, 3 says, be diligent to keep the unity. And there's a reason why it says be diligent, because this relational stuff is hard. Ugh, you need to be relentlessly committed to the idea of unity. Um, there are relational landmines everywhere these days. Folks, I, I've said it before, but Unity is so hard fought for, and it's so easily lost. And so how you deal with conflict can actually glorify God. It it will almost certainly grow you in, in maturity if you allow it. Listen, I hate to break it to you, but God's greatest purpose for you is not to make you happy or wealthy, or provide a life of ease. It's actually to conform you and transform you into the character and the likeness of Christ. And by his grace, God can actually use conflict to that end. And so, how do we typically respond to conflict? There's three general ways, as far as I can tell. See if you can identify your own style. First style really are escape responses, right? Denial, withdraw. Oh, somebody's saying amen to that, right? That, it's, that's me. Oh, okay, okay, okay. We'll withdraw together. Uh, as opposed to fight, these are the flight responses. These are really lose-lose responses. And, and withdrawal is unbiblical. It says, I don't care enough about the relationship. I don't care enough about you to invest the way Jesus wants me to. And Paul says, you've heard this before, speak the truth in love to each other, which means, first of all, it needs to be truth, and it needs to be loving, but it needs to be spoken as well. That's, that's the hard part. It needs to actually be said sometimes. And psychologists will confirm the the effects of repressed anger and hurts, you know, the things that we try to sweep under the rug. Blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus said, but these are not really peacemakers. These are peace fakers. The second is more of the attack responses, you know, whether it's verbal, arguing, litigation, even physical it's all about escalation. Actually, it's all about winning, isn't it? 
if there's a winner, there has to be a loser. So this is a win-lose kind of scenario. And, um, you know, sometimes, do you ever do this in the shower? You're practicing your argument with somebody. And if he says this, then I'm going to come back with that. But if he takes it up a notch, I'm going to bring this up. And it's just escalating in your mind. Your, your mind will take you to crazy places. Well, this is the way the world works sometimes, right? He comes to you with a knife. You come to him with a gun. He sends one of yours to the hospital. You send one of his to the morgue. Um, <laughs> escalation. These aren't peacemakers. These are peace breakers. What we ought to be aiming for is, is, number three, conciliation responses, discussion, negotiation, mediation, arbitration. These are the words associated with peacemakers. And these are people who honestly seek to make it a win-win for everyone involved. It's not a zero-sum game, you know, of winners and losers. And these are the people Jesus is talking about when he says, blessed are the peacemakers. It's a really interesting contrast between these three responses. There's, there's a difference in focus. You know, when I resort to my natural default, which is escape responses, I'm really focused on me. I'm looking at what's easy for me, convenient or non-threatening to me. And when I use an attack response, I'm, I'm generally focused on you. You're the one who's at fault. You did this to me, expecting you to solve this or, or apologize. Or, but when I use conciliation responses, the focus really is on us, on the relationship. I'm conscious of everyone's interests. I'm conscious of God's perspective in all of this. Colossians 3.13 says, Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And by the way, there's this whole other sermon that could be preached about some of the conflict that you might be in right now. And it's, it could be a spiritual battle, an invisible battle that is not of flesh and blood. Um, and so our adversary, the devil, he tries to gain a, a foothold of division, and he does it through lies, mostly. He does it because he hates unity. He, he wants churches to be closed and split. He wants people being fake and suppressing speaking truth in love. So I just, I just want you to be aware of that. Um, we can't get into it deeply this morning. So if you want to be a peace maker, not a peace faker or a peace breaker, what does Jesus and the wisdom of Scripture tell us to do? A couple things. Number one, peacemaking really starts with getting the log out of your own eye, doesn't it? Remember, with this, we talked about this on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, verse 3 to 5. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when all the time there's this plank in your own eye, you hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. You know, a wise, mature Christ follower is, is asking themselves, 
how have I contributed to this tension? What, what could I have done different? Um, where are my blind spots on this? You know, it's so much easier to justify yourself, to maneuver, to get your own way, but to examine your attitude, to um, evaluate your responsibility in the situation. That takes maturity. And, and maybe um, after some real soul realize you're the one who needs to maybe overlook a minor offense or, or just take responsibility for your part. You know, just from a practical standpoint, when you come with that posture of, of self-reflection, almost every time it, it'll just soften the demeanor of your adversary. It will accelerate the goal of reconciliation. And, and some people think that the, the log in your eye passage means that you don't have the right to confront anyone. No, that's not what it's saying. It does warn you, though, against confrontation where you haven't humbly reflected on your own contribution before you go and confront somebody else on theirs. One of the ways we, um, we don't look at the log in our eye is through this thing called invalidation. You know, we invalidate through sarcasm, through belittling someone, through gaslighting someone. And it happens a million different ways. You know, husbands, uh, what happens when you hear this from your wife? We haven't been spending enough time together. Your instinct is to say, excuse me? And you, you, you whip out your calendar and you show her all the, all the time you've spent together or the good reasons why you haven't been available. And you might say, I've been working hard for this family. You're essentially saying, if you had the information that I had, you wouldn't feel this way. And uh, I'm afraid that is too often my response. Def defensive justification. Guys, she's saying something intuitive. She's, she's feeling distance, feeling unloved. L listen, listen. Thank you, Paul. You know, you know, it took, it took 40 years. And <laughs> how long have you enjoyed being married? 47. 47, praise God. Here's another way we can, we can glorify God in conflict. That is to overlook minor offenses. Here's what Proverbs says. A fool shows his annoyance at once, but a prudent man overlooks an insult. First Peter, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. We did this month-long series a little while ago about becoming a people who are unoffendable, um, who don't keep a record of wrongs, who, you may remember the original the original word for offense in scripture, it means trap or snare. Because offense is a trap, particularly minor offenses. There are times, folks, I think when we need to lighten up, suck it up, to stop having such thin skin, uh, to assume the best of others. Am I right? Yeah. So if you decide to purposely, willingly, graciously overlook an offense, you really need to overlook it. In other words, it doesn't mean that you, 
you keep secret score or you, you don't bank that for a rainy day. You know, you truly forgive. You truly let it go. But we also need God to give us wisdom and discernment to know that there are some hills worth fighting on. Uh, times and things that need to be confronted. You might even need to talk to someone about their sin or behavior. In other words, the question is, when is the issue too serious to overlook? You know, the world gets the luxury of sort of having this mind your own business and all mind mine mentality. But Christian, we are called to such a higher standard with each other as brothers and sisters. When the New Testament talks about church, it is almost always in the context of family or a body. And so we don't have the luxury of just sort of letting relationships kind of die on the vine. There's just, there's too much at stake. So we're supposed to be accountable to one another. We're supposed to sharpen each other, love each other. It's what, it's what families do. And as hard as it is, there are some problems that will only grow worse if they're not dealt with in a straightforward way. So what are those issues that are just too serious to overlook? I'd say, number one, when the, when the reputation of the gospel is at stake, um, you know, if someone professes to be a Christian and is behaving in such a way that others are maybe likely to think less of God or his church or his word, it, it may be necessary for them to be confronted, uh, urged to change their behavior. Again, it's, we don't call attention to every minor offense. Number two, what if it's damaging your relationship? Um, if you find yourself unable to forgive or, or you're thinking less of that person, you got to talk that out. Uh, third is, is it hurting others? Um, folks, I'll just tell you right now, if you're abusing children or hitting your spouse or driving drunk, I'm telling, okay? I'm telling. There is no pastoral confidentiality around these things. Paul tells us to confront serious sin head on in the hopes of, of saving other believers from being led astray. Um, number four, is it hurting the offender? Well, what am I, my brother's keeper? What's the answer to that? Yeah, yeah, you are. Proverbs 24 says, rescue the perishing. Don't hesitate to step in and help. If you say, hey, that's none of my business, will that get you off the hook? Someone is watching you closely, you know. Someone not impressed with weak excuses. And then James 5 says, My dear friends, if you know people who have wandered off from God's truth, don't write them off. Go after them. Get them back. And you will have rescued precious lives from destruction and prevented an epidemic of wandering away from God. So does your situation fit one of those? Well, now it's time for the hard part. And it it means having a tough conversation. You know, I love the Bible. It's so wise. It's so practical at times. So much of it can give us just this real-world solutions on how to live well. And here, Jesus gets very practical 
in Matthew 18. He says, If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault, just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by a testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan. So there's a, there's a process here. It's a, a procedure. We call it in the church the, the Matthew 18 principle. If someone comes to you with a complaint against someone else, the first thing you need to ask them is this. Have you talked to that person? If they haven't, you can offer to go with them. You can give them a deadline. But biblically speaking, you shouldn't be part of listening to this. They need to talk to that person. They need to see it as an opportunity to to clear the air, to, to fix the misunderstanding, to be reconciled. Now, uh, you only have to say that to someone a couple of times before they stop coming to you with gossip and complaints, right? They'll know that you aren't going to let them get away with that. I know gossip is tempting. Some translations in Proverbs call gossip delicious. Oh, isn't it delicious sometimes? Mm. But if you want to get out of that sort of high school gossip loop, and, and so that you don't have to carry the weight of that junk around anymore, uh, you, you need to remove yourself from it. So, so Josie, I come to you, I say, is it just me, or is Brittany kind of being like, uh, what do you say to me? Huh? What? Go talk to her. And then I'll be afraid too because she kind of scares me a little bit. But (laughs) have you noticed most gossips aren't actually looking to resolve this conflict in a healthy way? Often they're just looking for allies, for affirmation. Is it just me or is Scott kind of a jerk because he did this, dot, dot, dot? I suppose the principle can be summed up this way. Talk to the right person in the right spirit. Um, the right person is the one involved in the problem. The right spirit is, is, is humility, looking at the log in your own eyes. So initially Jesus says, we are to talk to the person one-on-one. And, and my encouragement to you is not only to be courageous to confront but be, be courageous when receiving confrontation, that, that you would be mature enough to receive it in a humble way. It doesn't mean that the person's perception is always right, but, but could we be humble enough to say, okay, you've given me a lot to think about. I need to let that settle for a bit, and then I'll, I'll follow up. How many of you need 24 hours to process hard-to-hear information? Oh, I'm the only one? Okay, thank you. Some, thank you, Brittany. I know, I know. Brittany, right? I'm kidding, I'm kidding. You are so fun to just, you know, be the punchline. Sometimes, um, sometimes we need to hear what we don't really want to hear. 
And I know we long for approval, but frankly, every now and then, we, we need to hear some loving disapproval, a helpful reprimand. The, the wisest human ever wrote this, Proverbs 15. He who listens to a life-giving rebuke will be at home among the wise. A rebuke is like a, like a holy scolding. It's like a wake-up call from a trusted friend who, who, who maybe sees what you can't or won't. Even wise people make dumb choices sometimes. And when they do, it will be a true friend who will say, you know, there's a, there's a better way. So when people love you enough to confront you, when, when, actually, when those same people give you a compliment, it is so much more meaningful because you know it comes from a, a truer place. You, you may be the prophet someone needs to hear. You may be the Nathan to someone's David to get them back on track. And on the other hand, you may be the David who gets a spear thrown at him from Saul. So be it. You still do the right thing that God has called you to. Now, at one extreme end of the, of the spectrum is the busybody who wants to confront everyone for everything. And I'd say anyone who is eager to show his brother their sin is probably unqualified to do it. The best confronters are probably those who would prefer not to, but, but do it out of sort of a you know, a sober obedience and love. The other extreme are those who are reluctant to confront under any circumstances. And they quote Matthew 7 out of context. They say, do not judge lest you be judged yourself. And they say, you know, really, isn't it God's job to show people where they're wrong? And it's true that only the Holy Spirit can, can truly transform someone's heart. But God often uses another person to, to speak his words, to, to guide someone into repentance. And so what if you have this tough conversation and nothing changes? In fact, they get a little aggressive. They refuse to even acknowledge or listen. Well, Jesus says there's this next step. But if he will not listen, verse 16, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So it starts with just two of us, me and Brittany. But she won't listen. And so we, we bring in others. I bring in Josie. I bring in Glenn. And uh, no, that's not fair, is it? See what your wife is doing? Um, the idea is that as we widen the circle, we, we want the relationship to be saved. Most importantly, the, the relationship with God. The, the last straw of this process, one that we can't really get in today, but it, if someone still won't listen, it seems as though they don't want to be reconciled. It, it, it can become a church leadership accountability slash discipline issue. And, we, and you hope you never have to get to that point. Um, you say you're a brother or sister in Christ, and yet you refuse to work stuff out. 
That's not good. That's not the way of Jesus. Um, look, I'm going to close with, with this takeaway here. If you remember nothing else, would you remember this? There's one word, in my opinion, that, that sums up the God-honoring response to relational tension and conflict. It's probably not a word you were expecting. Are you ready? The word is go. Go. If you learn that someone has something against you, God wants you to take the initiative in seeking peace. Even if, if you don't believe you've done anything wrong. What? I have to go? Here's what Matthew 5 says. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. So you remember someone's offended with you. The onus is on you to go, to take the initiative. Go to them and be reconciled. And then later, Matthew 18, we read it, Jesus says, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. Now you're the one who sees something offensive in someone else. You still go. You take the initiative. So here's what's kind of sucky about all of this. Here's why being a Christ follower can be so hard sometimes. Whether you're the one who unintentionally caused the offense, or you hear about someone who's offended, or someone has offended you, the onus is always on you to go. Make things right. Uh, it's never the biblical response to say, I'm waiting for them to come to me, okay? That may seem unfair or, or hard or unjust, uh, hard on your pride, but Jesus says, you go. You take the first step. Um, not only is the relationship at stake, but in a, in a micro way, so too is the reputation of the gospel. Seeking peace with an alienated brother or sister enhances uh, your Christian witness, especially among those um, who, who have, has done the wrong. Let me close with just a couple quick tips, best practices. Um, I told you this could be a two-parter, but could we please, number one, believe the best about each other, assume the best, believe that their intentions are good. You may find out that they weren't, but instead of starting with that uh, mindset, which most people tend to do, could we come to a conflict humbly? Ask questions instead of making accusations. Be genuinely curious. There's a battle in the mind, isn't there? We need to choose to believe the best about our brothers and sisters. Uh, Satan's a liar and he wants us to be divided. He wants us not to like each other. Um, that guy didn't acknowledge me. He didn't look me in the eye. He walked right by me. He must be arrogant or hates me. Is it possible uh, that, that he doesn't like you? I guess. Is it also possible that that person had a lot on their mind or didn't see you? And uh, if I go to that person, I have the opportunity to either correct my misunderstanding or ask for forgiveness or receive forgiveness. Uh, second best practice, whenever possible, 
um, talk to the person face to face. Email, text. Most communication is nonverbal, right? And and there's a good chance of prolonging or maybe even worsening the conflict when you don't address it face to face. It's it's so much better to talk about you as well, like using statements like I statements, right? Um, I kind of felt, um, I kind of felt like hurt when this happened. And uh, uh, please, by the way, don't use statements like, you know, a lot of people feel this way. Who are these, who are these people? Um, the famous, mysterious lot of people. Don't be hyperbolic. The words always and never are just gasoline on a fire. You're always late, you know. You're never at home with the kids. It's, it's not helpful. It's probably not true either. Use the Bible carefully. It is not a weapon to hammer somebody with. Ask for feedback, right? See if you're being heard. See if you're being understood. And sometimes um, you need to know that that not getting your way doesn't mean that you weren't heard, that you weren't listened to. Um, maybe you muster up enough courage to talk to the leadership at the church. You talk to Keith, our, our board chair, and, and you feel like something should be changed. Well, you may feel tempted that you, to think you weren't listened to if the decision wasn't changed. Uh, no, it could just be that there was an honest-to-goodness difference of opinion. You said what you felt needed to be said. The decision wasn't changed. It does not mean that you weren't listened to. It's important that you make that distinction because you may end up frustrated or, or offended unnecessarily. If you're visiting today, um, whether you're a Christ follower or not, this stuff actually works. And I, I, don't, I don't tell you this this morning to kind of give you four Dr. Phil tips to healthy communication. I share this because the unity I have with Christ, the community I have with Christ, this common unity, common unity, is something you can have too. Uh, not only with us crazy folk, but with a perfect Savior who loves you so much, who had that invitation, come to the altar. My arms are open wide. So let me close with this prayer that Jesus prayed uh, over his followers. He says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father. Just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity.